0: Greetings and welcome to Etzheim's Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. We've been in a extended series uh, on the book of Romans, which we continue today. If my count is right, this is part 13. And uh, today, I want us to look together at the theme I'm going to call groaning in the spirit. And we're going to read together from Romans 8, uh, verses 13 to 27. So if you have your scriptures, uh, please open it. Romans 8, beginning, chapter, beginning in verse 13, and it's on the overhead uh, as well. And, and uh, Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, says this, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption, to Sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Messiah. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. The whole creation indeed waits in eager expectation for the Bnei Elohim, the children of God, to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the freedom and glory of the children of God. In fact, we know the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that's seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we don't yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Amen. Now this passage, among other things, this passage talks a lot about suffering. And if your life is going to be equipped to deal with the trials and tribulations and disappointments in life, then you're going to need to see how faith in Yeshua prepares you to face and to deal with all these unavoidable brutalities and sufferings of life. So if you have a burden today, if you're struggling with something today, this message of hope is for you. Uh, And this text tells us three things about suffering we're going to look at today, and and we have it on the overhead. Uh, It gives us, number one, a warning about suffering. Number two, it gives us three resources for dealing with suffering. And number three, how you can be sure these resources will work. So number one, a warning about suffering. Number two, three awesome resources for how to deal with suffering. And then three, how you can be sure they will work. So, number one, a warning about suffering. Now, this is an amazing passage. It talks a lot about groaning. Uh, and this word groaning in the Greek is a very strong word. Uh, it's a word that means an expression of pain. Uh, and, in fact, in Greek literature, this word was used to express the cry of someone uh, facing death. Uh, it can be a death pain. So, for example, in verse 22, it's associated with the pains of childbirth. Remember, especially in ancient times, a woman crying, groaning, screaming as she's giving birth is not just an expression of pain. She's also in mortal danger. In ancient times, many women died in childbirth. In the Bible, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. Uh, And the same word is also used to describe the groanings of warriors on the battlefield. You know, when the fighting is done and the smoke clears, and the noise of the battle itself is over, one of the most horrible things so many veterans and and first-hand observers of warfare will tell you is the groanings of the warriors on the battlefield. They're crying out. They're groaning because they see their blood, their lives, they're terribly wounded. They see their life literally ebbing out from them. They're crying out, they're groaning, they're saying, please come and staunch this wound, or I'm dead. And that's what this word means. Or it has that connotation. It's a death pain, uh, a death groan. And now, to our utter surprise, Paul here speaks of the creation groaning. Uh, The whole material world, not just us, is groaning. Our material environment, the world itself, is groaning. The text says creation itself is being crushed under a bondage of decay and frustration. What does that mean? It means this. Everything, everything, not just us, everything in this world is steadily, irreversibly, inexorably, unavoidably falling apart, wearing down, wearing out giving out. Everything is running down, going to greater and greater disorder called the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, The universe itself is slowly deteriorating. It's running down. It's increasing in randomness. But we can be so much more personal than than that. Take your heart. It's not like an electric clock that goes on forever. It's more like a wind-up clock that's been wound up once, has a finite... Number of ticks. And even as you sit here, it's running out. And not just your heart, your whole body is slowly, or some of us more rapidly, <laughs> falling apart. Now, we can do a lot to retard or to hide that. So, for example, many women use cosmetics to restore the color and sheen that you used to have naturally as a child. You had it once. You didn't need cosmetics. But now it's gone, and it will never come back. (laughs) You can hide the aging process. Some of you can hide it extremely well. (laughs) But you can't stop it. Even the closest circle of friends, the the tightest family, do you know what time and circumstance is doing? It's picking it apart. One by one, time and circumstance is going to separate you. It's going to remove you from one another. Here's the point. We live in a culture in which we think that suffering is somehow an anomaly. Uh, and then if you're savvy enough, if, you, uh, if things work right, you shouldn't suffer. And if you do suffer, you get angry. Now we live in a, the, the number one culture in all of human history that does not know how to deal with suffering. Uh, you think life's mistreating you. God's mistreating you. Uh, somebody's mistreating you. That's why we have so many lawsuits, Right? <laughs> But this text tells us everything that your heart longs for is just a wave on the sand. Uh, It's receding away from you. It's inevitably receding from you. It's all going to go. Now, in various ways, you may be able to avoid suffering for a while. Maybe even until your early 30s. (laughs) But eventually, it's unavoidable. Bad, horrendous groaning and suffering. It's just inevitable. It's unavoidable. That's the lesson, the a warning about suffering from this text. That's point number one. So point number two, you need resources to deal with it. You may think, no, I don't. Not if I'm smart, if I'm savvy, uh, if I'm nimble. No, it's unavoidable. You need resources to deal with suffering. And this text gives you three amazing resources. Paul tells us your three resources uh, that come, with, uh, uh, come with, 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 with being in Yeshua we bringing Yeshua into your life as your Lord, as your Savior, as your Messiah. You surrender your life to Yeshua, you're born again, you get these three resources. We're going to look at them under these three headings we have on the overhead. Number one, prayer, uh, pattern, and perspective. Okay, prayer, pattern, and perspective. So number one, prayer. When you suffer, you can process the suffering through prayer. Well, of course you say, everybody knows that. Everybody prays in, in times of need. Like the old saying goes, there's no uh, atheists in foxholes. When troubles happen, people who ordinarily do not pray try to do so. Uh, but these types of prayers are kind of more like em- emergency flares. You just send them out, some kind of desperate SOS. Uh, if anybody's up there, help. <laughs> That's how many of us pray in times of trouble. But Paul here is talking about something very different. At the beginning of the, of the passage, in verse 15, we're told this about Abba prayer. Look at Romans 8, 15. By the, by the Spirit of God, you receive adoption to sonship, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. That you were here in the past few weeks, we discussed this word, Abba, that it's actually a universal language. Because in every culture, no matter what culture you're from, no matter what your language background When a little baby finally gives a name to one of his or her parents, it comes out something like this. Mama, Dada, Papa, Abba. What's this saying? Paul's saying, because of what Yeshua has done for you, because of what it means to be in Yeshua the Messiah, when you groan, when you cry, when you scream, even like Job, when you scream in Messiah Yeshua, God hears that cry the way a parent hears the cry of his or her child. When you, when you hear your child scream in pain, what do you do? Do you just say, oh gosh? No, when you sense your child's in danger, you immediately react. Or you come to the rescue. Now, there's all sorts of cries children have. You get to know them after a while. There's the, I'm irritated cry. There's the, I want attention cry. Uh, Then there's, I'm-in-trouble cry. And when you hear that cry, your love is stirred. It's stirred up. It's intensified. Uh, And this text is telling us, in spite of how you may feel, uh, that when you're suffering, when you're in trouble, you can know that God responds to your groaning the way a parent responds to a child in trouble. God responds to your Groaning, the way a, a mother or a father responds to the cry of, of their child. There is an intense love, an intense care, and Paul's telling us here that absolutely you can go to God uh, with that kind of confidence, and know that God will respond with that kind of care, that kind of attention, that kind of love. But that's something. That's not the only kind of prayer we're given here, which told uh, not just about Abba prayer. But well, look at the very end of the passage. Paul says, when we're weak, when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit himself prays for us. Look at Romans eight twenty six. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what, to, what we ought to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. What is this saying? Now, some people have said this is the Spirit helping you to pray in tongues. Now, I speak in tongues, uh, and there are a number of passages that talk about speaking in tongues, but with all due re- due respect to my Pentecostal brothers and sisters, this isn't one of them. <laughs> that's not what this passage is talking about. Indeed, it's talking it's not talking about a sound that we make. It isn't talking about us that's making a sound. This is the Spirit praying. This is not us praying. This is the Spirit interceding and praying for us, doing something in our place. When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit lays out our petitions before the throne of God as they ought to be coming. Let me give you an example of how we don't always don't know how to pray. I went to both undergraduate college and law school with this beautiful African-American Christian girl from Jamaica who was also an opera singer. I had a crush on her. I thought she was the one God wanted me to marry. So I prayed and I prayed for God to make this happen. I prayed fervently, Lord, please let her fall madly in love with me and for us to get married. (laughs) But she did not have the same feelings for me. And she dumped me for another opera singer. <laughs> and in hindsight, all these years later, it was the best thing that could have happened. Because otherwise, I never would have met and married Elizabeth. My soulmate. my have the love of my life. Clearly the one the Lord had for me. So in hindsight, my prayer to God to make, to cause this other woman to fall in love with me... That's what I call an absolutely stupid prayer. (laughs) And so it's very good that God did not answer that prayer in the way I wanted him to at the time. So on one level, you could say, God didn't answer your prayer, right? Well, yes and no. Because there's always the core part of the prayer. And then there's the stupid part. (laughs) The core part is the groan. The core part is, help me. Uh, I think this is the woman I need in order for me to be the man you want me to be. I think this is what I need. So please help me be this. Please give me this woman I need uh, to be this. Please help me, Lord. That's the core part of the prayer. Then there's the stupid part. This is the particular girl for me uh, that will help me, help me do all that. So did the Lord answer my prayer or not? Wouldn't it be great for God always to give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows? Wouldn't it be great if God was so gracious that every time you prayed, he would give you and only give you, uh, because we're stupid, we don't know what to pray for all the time, half the time, right? But if God would, uh, wouldn't it be great if God gave you and only gave you what you would have asked for had you known everything that he knew, and saw everything that he could see. Well, the good news is, yes, we do indeed have a God like that. Because that's what this text in Romans 8 is saying. Verse 26, 27, they're saying, When you don't know how to pray, the Spirit takes the core and prays for you as you should be praying. So when you suffer, you can come before God with the kind of, that kind of Confidence. You know that he's going to give you what you would have asked for if you had known everything that he knows, in spite of the fact that right now you probably don't, and you don't think. Right now, you probably don't think he's letting you what he's letting you experience is a very good thing or a very good idea. But he's going to give you what you would have asked for if you knew into the future everything that he now knows, and he does care, and he does love you. He loves you intensely. And if you're able to process your suffering before God like that, then you will have a calm in the midst of the storm. You will have a groundedness. You will have shalom, peace. That's your first resource, prayer. That's not the only one. A second resource uh, is, is a pattern. What, what do I mean by a, a pattern? Well, as any pastor or as any messianic rabbi knows... People constantly ask, well, if God really loves me, why are all these bad things happening to me? If God really loves me, why this tragedy in my life? Why this suffering? If, God, if He loves me in Yeshua, like you say, why am I undergoing all of this? And Paul, in response in verse 17, what does he do? He completely turns the tables around on that question. Completely turns the tables. He doesn't just say that suffering does not negate or disprove the gospel. He doesn't just say that, he says that suffering is actually a sign that you are a Yeshua follower. Look at Romans 8:17. Now, if we're his children, then we're heirs, heirs with God, co-heirs with Messiah, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is amazing. Paul's not saying, oh, oh, you're still a believer and loved by God in spite of all your suffering. No. He says suffering is actually a sign that you are a Yeshua follower. You are a believer. Yeshua suffered terribly. Is a servant above his master? No. So if our master Yeshua suffered, why should we be surprised when we, his followers, suffer? In fact, wear it, Paul says, is a badge of affirmation. In verse 17, Paul says, Now we're children of God and co-heirs with Messiah if we share in his sufferings. So suffering is actually a sign that you are his child. Now you might ask, Wait a minute now, wasn't your first point that everybody suffers? Believers and unbelievers alike? That it's inevitable? Yes, but notice that verse 17 says that we're his children if we share in his sufferings, in Yeshua's sufferings, in those sufferings that lead to glory. What's that? There was a pattern in Yeshua's life. The pattern included rejection. His family didn't understand him. His friends didn't understand him. He was despised and rejected. Uh, He wasn't beautiful. He had no form or majesty that we should desire him. Uh, He was a victim of injustice uh, and betrayal and torture and death. He had one suffering after another, after another. But nonetheless, his attitude was, not my will, Lord, but thine be done. He was faithful. He was trusting. He was obedient. And as a result, his death led to life. His weakness led to strength. Uh, There was a death-resurrection pattern in his life. And what Paul is saying is this. If you do the same... You'll share in his sufferings, yes, but ultimately you will also share in his glory. Paul's saying the things that come into your life actually change you. Uh, the weakness turns to strength. So, for example, let's say you're working out in the gym, let's say doing bicep curls, and your arm feels like it's about to fall off. Uh it's actually, though, getting stronger. Your arm may feel weaker and weaker uh, as you tire out, it's exhausting, you're as you're exercising. But it's actually getting stronger and stronger. And in a similar way, Paul says that suffering in Messiah leads to glory. Look at Romans 5, verse 3. Paul says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Put this on the overhead, please. Romans uh, 5, verse 3. We also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know, what? That suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, Hope. Now, Paul doesn't say we rejoice for our sufferings. This isn't masochism. This isn't isn't spiritual masochism. We I'm suffering. (laughs) No, Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our sufferings produce perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And then look at verse 5, Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, which he's given us. Now, an acorn has an amend- a tremendous amount of potential in it. You know, within the acorn, there's a power to create this huge tree, this huge oak tree, with hundreds and hundreds of acorns uh, uh, in, the, in the tree, each of which produces a tree with hundreds and hundreds of acorns, and on and on and on and on. So a single acorn has the power to cover the entire earth in wood. And yet that acorn's potential can't be released until it goes into the earth and dies. And the Bible is constantly talking about this death-resurrection pattern. Unless you're humbled, unless you're broken of your self-sufficiency, you will not realize your potential. You're in the image of God. You've got this amazing potential for understanding and wisdom and insight and for compassion for others. You have potential for greatness and joy and hope and character. What we're being told here is unless that potential of yours goes into the soil of difficulty and trial, it will not bring out your full glory. Without weakness, there will not be strength. Without death, there will never be resurrection. But it's possible. If you share in Yeshua's sufferings, if you follow his pattern, and if you do looking to him, looking to him, remembering him, seeing what Yeshua did, following him, believing in him, trusting in him, then what happens? Then you become a diamond under that pressure. That's what Paul's saying here. So number one, you've got to process this through prayer. If you process this through prayer, then number two, you have the hope of this pattern, on the overhead, please, of, of death and resurrection being actually reproduced in your life. Then there's a third resource as well. The third resource is a new perspective. So we have prayer, pattern, perspective. This is the most powerful one. Paul's constantly saying what we need in order to handle our suffering is hope. You need patience. You've got to look to the future and hope. Uh, But the best thing he says is verse 18. Look at Romans 8, 18. Paul says, now I considered. Now this Greek word literally means to reckon. Like we say in Texas, I reckon. (laughs) It means to reckon, to count. It's an accounting word. That means to add it up. Uh, to count on it, to think about it, to reflect on it, try to see every facet of it, every angle, like a, like a multifaceted diamond. Consider every penny. Now, I consider, I reckon, that our present suffering isn't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's the eternal perspective that you need to have. Here's an example. Imagine two different rooms side by side. You put two, two different people in these rooms, Uh, one in each room, and you give them absolutely identical tasks. Menial, difficult, boring, repetitive, manual labor. And you say, you're going to work 80 hours a week, uh, no vacation, 12 straight months in this little room. It's going to be boring. It's going to be tedious. It's going to be hard. And you say to the first guy, at the end of the 12 months, you will get an annual salary of $15,000. And he said, the second guy, at the end of the 12 months, you'll get an annual salary of $150 million. Now, these two guys are going to experience these identical circumstances in radically different ways. The first guy, after three or four weeks, he's going to say, who can take anything like this? This is unbearable. It's driving me crazy. I can't take it anymore. I quit. The second guy, he's happily working away, whistling while he works entire time in joy, no problem, no problem at all, glad to be there. Now, wait a minute, it's the exact same circumstances. Why the radically different reaction to them? Because the tediousness, the difficulty, the trial of it is absolutely overshadowed and outweighed by the glory that will be revealed. Let me put this on the overhead. In other words, how you experience your present is completely shaped by what you consider your ultimate future to be. Let me say it again. How you experience what's happening to you in the present and all your sufferings is completely shaped by what you consider your ultimate future will be. Completely shaped by it. And so if you rest the deepest hopes of your heart in anything but the Messiah, Yeshua, if the deepest hopes of your heart Uh, Is anything except Yeshua, uh, if it's a political cause, uh, a relationship, uh, material success, uh, uh, artistic or athletic achievement, anything. If you put the deepest hopes of your heart in anything but Yeshua, it will not help you deal with your sufferings. Because your hopes will just be a, a passing thing of this world. Everything you put your hopes in will be fragile and fleeting and disappointing and subject to loss and breakdown and failure. No matter how strong you think you are, no matter how stoic uh, and unmovable you are, suffering will take you out. And your entire life will be steeped in anxiety uh, and discontent uh, and doubt and fear uh, and endless restless driving after the wind. Your whole life will be characterized by a ground note of anxiety. But if you know that in Yeshua, you're ultimately in for the eternal weight of glory, and this is the rock bed of divine hope that you can lean on and trust in, then you will have the perspective that can not only survive, but even thrive on and grow in In the midst of all your trials and sufferings and tribulations, you will grow, you will thrive. Why? Because you have fixed your eyes on Yeshua and the certainty of God's future for you that he brings. Paul goes on to say in the next verses that that even the creation, although substance to decay, eagerly awaits our redemption, which will usher in a worldwide redemption of nature itself. You know, creation is beautiful even today, right? Look at the Grand Canyon or the oceans or snow-capped mountains. They're glorious. And yet, Paul says, creation today is just a shadow of what it's going to be. Just a shadow. Why? Because today we have disease and viruses and earthquakes and nature red in tooth and claw. It's not what it originally was intended to be. So the creation, Paul says, is groaning. What's going to liberate it? Look at verse Romans 8:19. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul says creation is waiting for your and my liberation. We're groaning inwardly for redemption for our bodies, but so is nature itself. In other words, some kind of glory will descend upon us and upon all creation in the last days. We are going to become, you are going to become, if you're in Messiah Yeshua, so radiant, so cleansed, so great, that you'll hardly recognize yourself. You Today, if you have five senses, all five of your senses are working, and someone else only has four, let's say uh, they've lost their sight, or their hearing, they're blind, they're deaf... The difference between five senses and four senses is huge. A huge difference in your ability to, to handle life, to enjoy life. The difference between five senses and four is huge. But when we receive our glorified bodies, uh, what if you have ten or twenty or a hundred senses? What, what you'll be like then, compared to what you are like now, is you'll be like, what you are like now would be like a tomato, you know, a zucchini, <laughs> compared to what you'll be like then. There's going to be a glory that comes down upon you, and it's going to be so astounding that it'll already transform the material universe as well. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 8. That our glory is going to bring nature and its glory with it. This is a material thing. Paul's talking about physical bodies, uh, redeemed bodies. A glorious creation. You're not just getting heaven. uh, Because as great as an ethereal, spiritual heaven would be, heaven would just be a consolation for this life that we've lost. uh, Or the life you never had. But but, but resurrection is a restoration of that life. It's the undoing of, of everything wrong. As Sam Ganji said in Lord of the Rings, everything sad is going to become untrue. Everything. It's landscapes and hugs and feasts, not just getting back the things you lost. It's it's doing the things you never could do. It's writing the great American novel. It's composing the magnificent symphony you were never good enough to compose before. It's running the marathon in record time. Uh, It's singing the most uplifting worship songs uh, you never were able to sing before. And that's why C.S. Lewis, uh, he puts it like this, his, his book, uh, The Weight of Glory. We'll put this on the overhead. He says this, if we take the scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, will be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we're on the outside of the world. We're on the the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the beauty of the dew in the morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure and, and beautiful. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And when human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they'll put on that glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature itself is now only the first sketch. We're summoned to pass in through nature and beyond her into that glory which she now only so fitfully reflects. Do you believe this? I don't believe it as I ought to. But the degree that it's real to me in prayer, to that degree, I grasp it, I understand it, I celebrate it. To that degree. And it overshadows the tedious circumstances of my life. Including the circumstances of the example I gave. Where those two men in that little room. Working 80 hours a week on menial labor. Uh, So they're like the second man looking to his future reward. You need to get an eternal perspective. You need to grasp it. You need to, to prayer process it. And then you'll find that suffering, if properly processed, ultimately reproduces the same pattern of death and resurrection, of death into life, of weakness into strength, of mediocrity into greatness of spirit and character in your life as you become more and more like him, more and more like your Lord Yeshua. So that's with these three things here put on the overhead. There's warning about suffering, the three resources, prayer, pattern, perspective, for dealing with suffering. And then finally, number three, how can you be sure these resources will work for you in your life? How do I know? You know, David, you're telling me that God sees me in Messiah as, as, as a child. I'm his child. But, but when I suffer, I don't feel like his child. I don't feel like he loves me. No, David. You say in the future there'll be this great glory, but when I suffer, I don't feel that. It's not real to me. So how can I be sure these resources will work? Here's what the text says. Notice it says the Spirit of God Himself groans. That's amazing. That's just creation that groans. That's just that we groan. But thirdly, the Spirit of God Himself groans, and that's kind of weird if we think about it, right? Remember, the word groan literally means a death pain. It's a death pain. It means a person in mortal danger of dying. It means a person in enormous agony and pain. Well, wait a minute. How can the Spirit of God, how can God, who's immortal and eternal and omnipotent and infinite, possibly groan? How can the omnipotent God know what it's like to be a woman screaming in labor pains? knowing that she might be giving her life in order to bring this new life into the world? Or how can God know the agony and the groaning of a warrior on the battlefield, crying out for rescue, but knowing that he's probably just given his life in battle for his people? How can God know that kind of suffering? How can God know that kind of groaning and pain? And the answer is the Incarnation. The Lord himself taking on human flesh and blood in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. Paul explains it in Philippians 2, verse 6. He says, Messiah Yeshua, although being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Yeshua, the Son of God, becomes a man and becomes our high priest who experienced our human frailty and weakness and suffering and temptation and yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. The incarnation means that God was plunged into the ocean of vulnerability. He came into this groaning world. He came in and was subject to rejection and weakness and hunger and alienation. He was subject to betrayal and abandonment and injustice and finally torture and pain and suffering and death. And in fact, there's a place in Mark seven where Yeshua was healing this deaf, mute man, a uh, suffering man, and the text says Yeshua looks to heaven with a sigh, uh, with a deep sigh. But if you look carefully, the word literally in the Greek is the word "groaned." He groaned. Yeshua is groaning because he comes into this world and is standing alongside sufferers, and he's feeling and empathizing with what they're going through. And it's on the cross that he goes all the way. Because on the cross he says this in Matthew twenty seven, forty six. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course we know he's quoting from Psalm twenty two, verse one. But have you ever noticed what the whole verse says? Psalm twenty two, one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Yeshua On the cross was a warrior on the ultimate battlefield. Isaiah 53 says he went forth to face our enemies, right? Evil, sin, death. And he was crushed by them. And now he's groaning. He's groaning on the cross. He's dying. He calls out. No one comes. Why not? The scriptures tell us that this was God on that execution stake, uh, on the tree, absorbing in himself the penalty that we deserve for all the evil that we have done. Done to each other, done to the world, to God himself. Yeshua on the cross is paying the penalty for your sins. So that now you can know these resources in Romans chapter 8 will work. Because Yeshua was abandoned by God in his groaning, you never will be. Because Yeshua was forsaken in his death groan, when you groan, the father hears it. The way an earthly mother or father hears the cry of their child. And he loves you. And he hears your inarticulate cry. And he takes the stupid part of your petition and he drops it. And he answers what you would have asked for if you were smart enough to know everything that he knows. And he surrounds you, and he makes you something great through the suffering. And someday he's going to put an end to all of it, all, and to end all the suffering. Yeshua died on the cross so that someday God could end all the evil and suffering of this world without ending you and me. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that truth? Are you conforming your life to it? If so, it will transform your suffering into spiritual strength and make you a joyful, radiant new creation beyond all reckoning. 1 John 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Messiah appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Get this eternal perspective. Process your suffering through prayer. And the death and resurrection pattern of Yeshua will be then reproduced in your life for your good and for his glory. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, we pray we come before you now. And we thank you that you love us so much that you came to this earth for us. That you took on human flesh, that you groaned, you groaned in agony and pain for us, taking on the penalty for sin that we deserved, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we deserved to die, that we should have died. And so, Yeshua, you are the warrior on the ultimate battlefield, and you were victorious over sin, Satan, hell, death, and the grave. And so now in our suffering, we can come to you in prayer and know that you hear us. We can come to, to God the Father, our Abba, and know, Abba, you care. Even, even more than an earthly parent cares for their children. And when we don't know what to pray, we know the Spirit prays for us with groans too deep for words. And Lord, we thank you for this truth, that in, that in your word, uh, that our suffering is indeed a sign that we are yours. That a servant is not above his master. That uh, in our suffering, we're simply following this, this pattern, your pattern, Yeshua. We can take comfort that this pattern is not only a pattern of death, but also a pattern of resurrection to follow. Help us, Lord, to cling to you in our suffering so that we can grow spiritually stronger in the midst of it. Help us to look to you, Yeshua, because you transform our weakness into strength. You transform death into life. Help us to to share in your sufferings that we may also share in your glory. Help us to have this eternal perspective in our suffering that that produces perseverance and character and hope. Because unless a grain of wheat, we know, Lord, falls into the ground and dies, it cannot produce fruit. Lord, help us today to bear eternal fruit for your kingdom, Lord. Hallelujah. For we pray this all in your name. Shem Yeshua In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, amen. Amen. Shabbat Shabbat shalom.